I want to speak to you this morning about going the second mile. You say, Brother Fred, is that a biblical statement? Is there a verse in the Bible that says anything about going the second mile? Oh, yes. In Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives what is called the Sermon on the Mount because there was a great multitude, so Jesus set up on kind of a hill and just, just began to teach them. And boy, you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the teachings there will absolutely blow you away. But in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus was teaching. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. Jesus was saying to the multitudes that heard him, Now I know what it said in the Old Testament. But he said, Now that was law. But now we're moving into the age of grace. And the new covenant is not a law covenant. It is a grace covenant. And he said, as he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he was showing how utterly impossible it is to live under the new covenant and to follow the teachings of Jesus apart from the presence of God in your life. If there's anything that I see in Matthew 5 through 7, it just continuously rings in my ear that it is impossible to live the Christian life. It is possible to, impossible to let Jesus live out, to live the Christian life unless Jesus lives it out through you. So I'm going to take 10 verses, and then I'm going to zero in on one verse. But in these 10 verses, I want you to see how impossible it is to do this apart from Jesus Christ living in you and being in control of your life and living his life through you. It's a matter of yielding to him. So we begin in verse uh, 38. And Jesus says this often, all through the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, revenge, get even. Man, whatever he does to you, she does to you, you do to her. You've heard it said, a knife, an eye, and two for two. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That is totally contrary to human nature. If somebody slaps you, you want to slap them back. But Jesus said, no, that's not the way my followers act. He said, if somebody slaps you on one side of your face, turn your other side of your face. And then he goes on in verse 40 and says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, that's, I guess that's a, a, a coat or a long outfit. I don't know what it is, but it sounds good. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Well, Lord, I... I don't want him to give him my tunic. Man, I, he's suing me. He said, just as we don't operate like the world operates now. That's the world system. If anyone uh, 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 sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. Then he goes on and says, 
Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Don't just ever don't do what don't do just what is expected of you. Don't do that. In my kingdom, we don't respond in the flesh. And in my kingdom, we do more than is expected of us. Because we're not one mile people. With Christ in us, we are two mile people. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Then he goes on and said, now, he just give to him who asks you. Now, he's not necessarily talking about money here. He's talking about anything. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow, whether it's money or some flour to, to, get, to finish the cornbread or something like that. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You say, well, Lord, that's pretty strong. And then you go on and read. He says again, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You notice how he says, you heard that it was said. He said, that's all changed. But I say to you, love your enemies. <laughs> Bless those who curse you. <laughs> Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then he says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. All right, Jesus says all through the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said. And then he takes it to another level. He takes it to an entirely another level that is impossible to live unless you have the presence and power of God in your life. He just says, you can't do this. Your flesh doesn't want to do this. But it's only because of Jesus that you do it. But I was fascinated with that verse. If someone asks you to go a mile, go with him too. You know, to me that was saying that in the kingdom of God and as followers of Jesus, we never do just what is expected of us. Or also in our life, we never have the attitude I'm going to get by with as little as I can and still be successful. When we ought to be saying, man, how can I go the second mile? How can I go a step further? And I got to thinking about it. And, of course, I could go in any direction here. But there were five areas that God spoke to me, and there could be many more. Five areas that he said, now you need to go the second mile. You don't need to be a one-mile Christian. You need to go the second mile. And every one of them spoke to my heart, and I said, you know, Lord, that's exactly right. And here's the first thing he said. You need to go the, first, the second mile in your pursuit of God. He said, so many people are satisfied with a shallow knowledge of the Holy One, a God. They're satisfied with getting just enough of God where they feel like they're confident that they will go to heaven. But he said, no, no, you, you're not to be to go one mile in your pursuit of God. You're always to go the second mile in your pursuit of your knowledge of 
and relationship with the living God. You need to go the second mile. You know, um, when, when we talk about going the second mile in the pursuit of God, I got to thinking, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And the, the Son is God manifested in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is God present with us. And of course the Father it, it is the invisible one. He is Spirit. But there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we pursue God, we pursue God the Father. And when we pursue God, we pursue God the Son. And when we pursue God, we pursue God the Holy Spirit. Do you know all three were present at creation? You know, we say, I believe in God. Yeah, I do too. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Did you know they were all three present at creation? In Genesis chapter 1, it talks about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then you go to verse 26 and listen to what it said. And the Father said, and God said, let us, oh, that's more than one. Must be at least two. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. And then in, uh, also in Genesis, it talks about God the Holy Spirit where it said, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. The Spirit of God moved on the waters. So right there in the first book of the Bible, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Colossians makes it clear that the, the Son was present at creation. Uh, it, and listen to what he says. He is the image of the invisible God. That, that's God the Father, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the Father, the firstborn over all creation, For by him, now listen to this, was God the Son present at creation? For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so we see that all three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, were involved in creation. I want us to think a moment about God the Father. We're to pursue God the Father. We're to pursue to know Him as our Father. Now, that's another dimension there. You know, you know the tragedy is, sometimes we, we, we visualize God and relate to God the way we do to people on a human level. And when you say to some people, well, God is, a, is your Father. Well, they go back and think about their earthly Father. They may have had wonderful, loving, caring, earthly fathers that had a great influence in their life. Or they may have had an abusive, hard, cruel father. And, and And so when you talk about God the Father, they somehow, it's hard for them to visualize a father that would be so loving and so caring and so personally involved in their life. 
But the Bible talks about God as our Father. It says in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, 9, in this manner pray, Our Father, what a wonderful view of God, who art in heaven. And then it says over in Galatians 3, 26, listen to this, For you are all children of God, children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Brother Fred, I thought everybody that was ever born, everybody that was ever created by God was God's child. They're all God's children by creation. They're all God's child by creation. But they're only God's, God is only their father through Jesus Christ. For you're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's uh, in chapter Galatians chapter 4, verse 2. For you were under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So, you need to go the second mile in getting to know God as your Father. And boy, I love that verse where it says, He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Now listen to this. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit, into our that we may cry, Abba, Father. So when you pursue God, pursue to know Him as a loving, caring, ever-present Heavenly Father who cares for you. And then there's God the Son. In John 1, 1, look what it says. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Word was God. Now get this, and the Word was God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now here's where it all comes to the God the Son in verse 14. And, and the Word that was with God and was God and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus. He lived among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love what First John says. We saw Him. We touched Him. We listened to Him. And we had fellowship with Him. And we want you to have fellowship with us. God the Father is the invisible God who rules over all. God the Son is God manifested in the flesh. And He lived out. As He lived out His life on earth, He said, if you've seen Me, guess what? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And then, of course, there's God the Holy Spirit. You know, I had no trouble growing up in church to know that God the, God the Father, perfect deity, 100% God. I heard a lot about God the Son, Jesus, perfect deity, Son of Man, perfect humanity, Son of God, perfect deity. But I mean, I, I, and so it was wonderful. I knew all about Jesus, His birth, His death, His sinless life, His resurrection. But you know, somehow the Holy Spirit was hardly ever mentioned. But the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father. And just as much God as the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, as Jesus. He is a person. And so when you pursue God, you not only pursue God the Father, and you not only pursue God the Son, but you also pursue God the Holy Spirit. It gives us a num- in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Jesus said. In this one verse, you've got all, the whole Trinity. The whole Trinity present. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
Okay, there's Jesus saying, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me. And he goes on in the next verse, John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so, man, Jesus just exalted and said, God's going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going away, but God's promised you to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price? Let me tell you something. You're a one-miler if you don't, with great passion, pursue God. You need to pursue God, I'm telling you. It's all about the living God. It's all about the Father. Oh, you need to know all about the Father. And his great love for you. And his great provision for you. And how he cares for you. And how he longs to have fellowship with you. And then you need to know how God the Son died and rose again. And, and lives to live his life in us. And he never tells us to do anything. That his presence in us will not give us the power to do. I love the commandments of God. Because every commandment of God. I know God has to give me the power to do it. Because I can't do it in my own strength. And then you certainly need to get to know God the Holy Spirit. That is God present with you. God present with you. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. The key that, about the Holy Spirit is He leads us. He convicts us. He teaches us. He empowers us. He imparts gifts to us. And so I want to tell you to be a two-miler. Go the second mile in your pursuit of God. And the Bible's full of that. In Psalm 119, it says, uh, uh, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Now listen to this. Who seek him with their whole heart. You're blessed if you seek God with your whole heart. He says it again in verse 10. He says, uh, With my whole heart <laughs> I have, have I sought you. Don't let me wonder from your commandments. And then, of course, the verses I love so much, Jeremiah 29, 13. You've got to pursue God, y'all. You've got to go the second mile. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Man, the Bible says that God wants us to seek him and to find out who he is and what he is to us as the almighty, all-powerful, majestic, holy, righteous magnificent God and man we need to pursue him we need to go the second mile it says in Psalm 42 verse 1 and 2 as the deer pants for the water brook so pants my soul for you O God man he said my soul thirst for God for the living God man don't don't you wish that that was a passion in your life as the deer longs for water my soul longs for God. I'm thirsty for Him, the living God. Then in, in Isaiah 60, uh, Psalm 63, he says it again. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. How thirsty are you for God? I want to ask you, how thirsty are you? I mean, really, are you a one-miler? You're just thirsty enough to get by. Are you a two-miler? You're going to thirst for God with all your heart. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. 
in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. My heavens, how we, so I looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. You need to be the second miler in your pursuit of God. Here's the second thing. You need to go the second mile in your pursuit of holiness. Brother Ed was talking early in the song service, worship service, about holy, holy, holy. That's probably the most misunderstood word. What in the world is holiness? I remember when I was growing up, <laughs> there was a church in, in Rock Hill that said, uh, now you know that church over there on Cedar Street, that's a holiness church. Now that I've learned a little bit more about the Bible, every church ought to be a holiness church. Isn't that right? <laughs> and, 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 uh, and so uh, what about this pursuit of holiness? What is holiness anyway? Let me give you a couple of verses and then tell you. And you need to go the second mile in living a holy life. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 14. Boy, this is a good verse. All of them are good. Pursue peace with all people. Now, time out. What he's saying is, if, it is, if it's possible, live at peace with everybody. You know that with some people, it is not possible. You know you're not, that you're not ever going to be able to live at peace with them. But that doesn't deliver you. Pursue peace. You be a peacemaker. You be the one that pursues peace with all people. And listen at this. And holiness. Pursue holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. You know. And then you get over in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Then I want to tell you what holiness is. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God is holy and you be holy in your conduct. And it goes on and says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. I always struggle with that word. And I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe you... Uh, you've got to keep some, some laws or some rules and all that stuff. No. In the Hebrew, the word holiness, and this may sound a little unusual, but it means a cut above. It means it's higher than everything else. It's a cut above. It's higher than everything else. God is holy, holy, holy. He is a cut above everybody else. So when God tells us to be holy, it means that our life that we live is to be above the level of the life of this world. We live a cut above the American lifestyle, a cut above uh, the American way of life. Holiness means you rise above the carnal, the sinful, the worldly life. Now, the, the, the thing I'm asking you, are you pursuing to be holy? Are you pursuing to live a life that is above the level of this sinful world that we live in? You know, this is the thing that breaks my heart. Vance Havner made the statement, I went into the world looking for the church, but I didn't find it. But I went into the church and I found the world. Hey, listen. 
You know, the world wants us to conform to its image. And God said, no. He said, no. Be not conformed to this world. And so let me tell you one thing. A holy life is a life that love lives above the carnality and the sensuality and the absolute selfishness and greed and wickedness and dog-eat-dog mentality of this world. You don't live on the same level as this world lives. Your life, you live a, a cut above it. And that is because of Jesus in your life. Let me tell you something. <laughs> you know how we know what's light? From the Word of God. You know how we know what's darkness? From the Word of God. We, how we know what's good? From the Word of God. You know how we know what's evil? From the Word of God. You know how we know what's acceptable to God? From the Word of God. I want to tell you right now, don't you let this world tell you what is good, and don't you let this world tell you what is evil, because they have no concept of it whatsoever. None whatsoever. And so therefore, we do not get our lifestyle, I like this, we do not get our lifestyle from Hollywood, glory to God. We get our lifestyle from the Word of the living God. And Jesus is our example, and the early saints of the church are our example on how we're supposed to live. Sometimes it amazes me when I just, I, I, I like to watch people. I'm just a people watcher. And, and you know, I'll just watch them and, and I just think. And I say, my goodness, why are they doing that? I mean, they, they're dressing just like the world tells them to dress. They're talking just like the world tells them to talk. They're, they're doing just like the world tells them to do. In other words, they're letting the world control their behavior. Friend, let me tell you something. You look at this world and you'll walk around looking like an idiot. No, I shouldn't have said that. But I'm telling you, I, I mean, they, they ain't got it right. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't, a person's appearance does not turn me off because God looks on the outward appearance, but man looks on the heart. But now, just, just get, let me just give you an example. When I was growing up, and you say, well, Lord, that was back in the dark ages. Well, I can't help that. But you know, people never had rings in their noses and in their tongues and in their ears. I said, my Lord, that has to hurt. It has to hurt. And they, and they never, uh, uh, and I'm not being critical, but uh, pink hair, yellow hair, red hair, green hair, blue hair. Where did they get all this stuff? From rock stars and from people that, and listen to me. All I know, the Word of God says you're supposed to dress modestly. Did you know that? That means you're not supposed to be half naked. I think some people ran out of material before they finished the dress. You say, Brother Fred, you sound like a Pharisee. No, all I'm saying is this. We don't let the world fit us into its mold. We live a holy life. It is above the level of this world. We do not let the world set the standard. We let Jesus set the standard. And the Word of God set the standard. And don't let your kids say, well, everybody else in my school does that. You say, well, you're not everybody else. You're a child of God and you're a member of a Christian family. And we don't do like that and we don't act like that. And we don't dress like that. Well, I'm going to get upset. Well, go right ahead and get upset. You let your kids tell you what they want to do and they'll drive you crazy. <laughs> We're to pursue holiness. And I'm not talking about legalism or Pharisees. I just say, be sure the life you live represents Jesus Christ. They can look at you and say, man, 
Jesus Christ lives in her or him because they sure don't act and live like this world lives. And you've got to pursue holiness because the world through advertisements, movies, and all these things they spend millions of dollars to brainwash us with are trying to tell us how to live. But I'll tell you one thing, I refuse the lies of this world system and I choose to see what the Word of God says and let that be our standard of holiness. Our standard of holiness is the Word of the living God. Well, that's too narrow for me. Well, then you've got a problem. Here's the third thing. We're not only to pursue holiness. We're to live a life that's in Jesus and by his power that's above the level of this world. But the the thing we to do also is we go to second mile in the pursuit of forgiveness of others. I, I just got to thinking about the fact that if I just go one mile in forgiving others, that I'm going to constantly be struggling. But if I made up my mind according to the Word of God, and I've let the Word of God set the standard for me, then I've got to pursue. I've got to go the second mile in pursuing the forgiveness of others. You know, it was a very, that song about Peter was so beautiful a few moments ago, and and it so spoke to our heart. But you know, uh, uh, in the book of, um, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, listen to what it says. Now this is before Peter went through all the denial and, and repented and Jesus restored him and loved him. And, and he became, quote, the leader of the, of the church, he and Paul. Now, now look, Peter was trying to impress Jesus with his spirituality. Peter came to him and said, Lord. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Oh, Peter, I get you. He was strutting like that rooster that crowed. And he went up there to Jesus and said, Lord, I got some people that are sinning against me. How many? I tell you what, I, I, I'm going to forgive them 70 times. It, it don't, what do you think about that, Jesus? How many times shall I forgive my brother that sins against me? Seventy times. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to seventy times seven. That's 490 times. Anybody you've forgiven lately 490 times? You know, a lot of people, we all, all have one thing in common. We've all been hurt. Just like our Savior was hurt. We may have been hurt as a child. Or a young adult or as a teenager. But we've all been hurt. All of us. And we all know the pain of hurt. And the pain of rejection. We know that. You say, well, Brother Fred, we should not be so sensitive. Listen, let me tell you something. You've got to understand one thing. God made you to be loved. And when people who are important to you don't love you, or people you work around, or other people in your life, whether it's at school or wherever, when they don't love you, and they do the opposite of rejecting you, it's going to hurt because God made us to be loved. Now, the only way you can keep from being hurt is to put up a shield, and I've known people that have done that, 
and have been hurt one time and would never, ever, ever open themselves up again to be loved. But that's not right. And so if we were not only made to be loved, but we were made to love. Because love is of God, and he that loveth not knoweth not God. And so since we're made to, be, to love and to be loved, then we're going to get hurt. And you say, but Brother Fred, I'm just telling you one thing. Life is not fair. God never said it would, was. You say, well, life is hard. God always said it would be. But you know why you have such trouble forgiving? You say, I do not have any trouble forgiving. You have trouble lying. That's what you have trouble doing. <laughs> But I struggle with forgiveness. Oh, I've all, listen, you pastor a Baptist church for 60 years, and you'll struggle with forgiveness, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Woo. But let me say one thing. You know why you struggle? Because the pain is real. Because it hurts. I'm telling you, it hurts. When somebody does, when you're done wrong, it hurts. I'm telling you, it does. The pain is absolutely real. I think of all the people that I talk to that uh, uh, they, they love God and they really have forgiven, but they, you can still tell they're, they're struggling with a broken heart. A broken heart. But the pain is real, and that's why it's so hard to forgive. Let me tell you the reason you struggle with forgiveness because it is not an emotion. It's a choice. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It is a choice. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, forgive, forgive them, Father, forgive me of my trespasses just like I forgive others who trespass against me. And so you've got to understand that you struggle with forgiveness because it's, of the hurt is so deep, but you struggle with forgiveness because it's not an emotion, it is a choice. Let me, let me give you a verse of Scripture that uh, is very important. Matthew, Ephesians 4, 30, verse 32. And see, this is way, what God tells, I tell, God tells Christians to live. This is what it says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He can be grieved. Don't grieve him. Well, what grieves him? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed to the day of redemption. It says, let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath. That's just anger that's going to get even. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. That's loud hollering, loud talking and evil speaking. He said, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you. Put it away. With all malice, with no desire to intent. Don't, malice is hurt, uh, deliberately trying to hurt somebody. So put all bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice. Put it away from you. It has no place in the life of a child of God. And then he goes on and says, and boy, this ought to be all you need to say, God, I choose to forgive. Be kind tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, in Christ's sake, for in Christ forgave you. Forgive others, even as God, in Christ, has forgiven you. Now, I'm supposed to forgive others just like God 
in Christ has forgiven me. You know, you struggle with forgiveness because the pain is real. You struggle with forgiveness because it is not an emotion. It is a choice. If you wait till you feel like forgiving, you will never do it. You will never do it. Because you don't don't get healed of your emotions until you make a choice to forgive. That's when God can heal you. And you know, and this is the main reason people struggle with forgiveness. Is they think it means approval. Oh, it's easy for you to say. uh, For me to give them. But they didn't hurt you. (laughs) They hurt me. So you're telling me it doesn't really matter. You're telling me that it's not important. You're telling me that it wasn't a big deal. I'm not telling you that. I'll tell you this, though. Forgiveness does not mean approval. God has forgiven you and me of all of our sins if we're saved. And he never approved of a one of them. God's forgiveness did not signify his approval. And so you're waiting on this sense, well, if I forgive them, it means it didn't matter. It means it didn't hurt. It means, oh, no, it does not at all. I'm telling you, you forgive them even though you don't approve. It was wrong. It will never be right. And, and you're not trying to say it was not wrong. But you forgive them even though because you know it does not mean that you approve. You've got to pursue God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to pursue holiness Living above the lifestyle of this world. You've got to go the second mile, y'all. And that you certainly have got to go the second mile in forgiveness. There's no question about it. Because it, you'll be hurt now and then till you get to heaven. But you just make the choice. I'm going to forgive others even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. Here's the next thing. And there's, this is number four. Verse 5. And, and this, this, God just spoke to me about this. He said, you not only need to pursue, go the second mile in your pursuit of God. You not only need to go the second mile in your pursuit of holiness. And you not only need to go the second mile in your pursuit of the forgiveness of others. But you need to go the second mile to being a generous, giving person. You know what the problem in America is? It's called selfishness. It's called greed. It's called the love of money is the root. It didn't say money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And boy, in this nation, God, we, we live by the dollar sign. We live by the dollar sign. If, you, know, you may not even be in the stock market. I don't know. I just put some money somewhere, and I don't even know where it is. And uh, all I know is it's not going up; it's going down. And it wasn't much, so I can't. I ain't worried about that. But uh, I'm gonna tell you something. Nothing. Yet you're never more free. I'm gonna tell you this. I get excited when I think about this. You're never more free when you're generous, unselfish, giving, and not eaten up by greed. I am telling you. I, I mean, really. You know, I, I picked up, every now and then I'll pick up a penny that's almost on the ground. You say, you pick up pennies? I pick up any money. You pick up a penny? And it looks right because somebody was holding on so it's so tight. 
I get dollar bills that are so wrinkled, I said, May Lord, they just didn't want to let go of that dollar bill. I won't tell you what will set you free. You be, you, you be unselfish. You be generous. Just be generous. That's it. Be generous. Be a giver. Be a giver. Oh, yes. I, I'm telling you in every area of your life. Jesus said, and he's over in the book of Acts where Paul remembered what Jesus said. Uh, they told him Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Boy, when you give, you break the yoke of greed. You break the yoke of selfishness and the joy that comes into your heart and being able to share what God has given you with others is one of the most beautiful things in the world. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And look on what it says. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. I love this. Not grudgingly or of necessity. Don't give begrudging the fact, I've got to give this. You're begrudging it. You don't have any joy in giving. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity. I don't have to do this. For God loves a cheerful giver. Well, isn't that something? God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But God loves a cheerful giver. And you say, well, I, you know, it goes against my nature. I, 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 I'm just tight. I'm just tight. You're so tight you squeak when you walk. Listen, I'm telling you. It says in the next verse, God will give you the grace. You ever heard of the grace of giving? Listen what it says. God is able, and right in this context of this verse, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He said, let me tell you something. You obey God, you sow bountifully, you, you don't give grudgingly out of necessity, you give it cheerfully, God will make grace to abound toward you, and he will give you the grace of giving, and it will absolutely liberate you from greed and selfishness and everything like that. I tell you, there's nothing like being generous. You know, uh, in Malachi, there's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Try me now, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing there will not be room enough for you to receive it. And it goes on. And I will rebuke the devourer. He said, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes. So that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor the vine, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for the, it, you in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, tithing. Uh, a lot of people say, well, that's just an Old, Old Testament law. I'm going to show you how wrong you are on that. God, the tithe is that you give God 10% of whatever God gives you. I think, I think we got the best deal on that. He gives me a dollar, I give him a dime. He gives me two dollars, I give him 20 cents. I think we got the best deal. We got the best side of the deal on that. You say, well, God doesn't need our money. You're right, he does not. But I tell you what, he needs our heart. He needs our heart.
And he needs to know that we love him more than we love money. Oh, yes. You say, well, what did Jesus have to say about tithing? And I'm going to move on from that because it makes some of you nervous. Here it is. Matthew 23, 23. Listen to what Jesus said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You pay tithe of mint, of anise, and of cumin, and have neglected the weighter matters of the law, 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 justice, mercy, and faith. He said, now I know you're so proud of giving your tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and you've, but you've neglected law, justice, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done. Now, wait a minute. These ought you to have done. You should have given the anise, the cumin, and the, uh, and the uh, uh, mint. You should have done that. These ought you to have done without leaving the others. Love, just, mercy, justice, and faith undone. So Jesus said, you were doing the right thing in what you were tithing. But you were doing the wrong things because you were neglecting things that were more important than that. Okay, so there are five things we need to go the second mile for. Number one, the pursuit of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number two, the pursuit of holiness. Number three, the pursuit of generous, of, 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 number three, the pr- pursuit of forgiveness of others. Number four, the pursuit of being a generous, unselfish, giving person. Now here's the other one. And it is very, very important. The pursuit of the family. You know, um, Somebody said, as the family goes, so goes society. As society goes, so goes the nation. Uh, You know why the devil hates the family so? Because that was God's plan from the beginning. He created Adam, created Eve, and they said, go and replenish the earth. They had Cain, and they had Abel, and here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, and we all the result of, of the family. We all result of, of marriage. And so it's no, it's no, under, it's no, you don't take, have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the devil hates the family. And he'll do everything he can to destroy it. Oh, he will. But you know, let me, let me just say one thing. The family begins with the marriage. Okay. So let's go back and tell, say, are there any guide, guidelines that God gave for marriage? All right, he did. It's in the book of Corinthians, chapter, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Now, for some of you, you're going to say, it's too late for me, Brother Fred. Well, you've got to pray and ask God to show you what to do. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So here's a believer. He says, now don't you get unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He's talking about in marriage. He's talking about in business. He's talking about in any situation where there are decisions to be made. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? Here's a believer. And they have fellowship and and communion. And they have light. And here's an unbeliever. There's darkness and all that. For what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Okay. And verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, and be their God. Now, first of all, when you're thinking about getting married, you say, well, you should have told me this 40 years ago. Well, you knew it, but you just didn't know anything about it. 
Um, you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. If you're saved, you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. Because you're in the light and they're in the darkness. And you uh, have righteousness and the desire to be righteous. They're lawless and uh, they're going to be lawless. You're spiritually alive and they're spiritually dead. So, but you say, but they're so nice until you get married. Yeah, they're nice. Oh, yeah, they're real nice. They'll even come to church with you. And the day you say, I do, they bail out. You say, but I just, I just love them. Well, give me a break. If you knowingly are thinking about marrying an unbeliever, you are headed for deep trouble. And you'll never be one because you won't be one in Christ. Well, he'll get saved after we get married. I hope so. But God said, don't take that chance. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You say, but I don't like that verse. Well, that's your problem. It's not mine. And I have seen people, and I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew that they had no business. And this person was being spiritual around me, but I could see through it. And, and I, just, I just said, you know, you need to be careful. And, and let me just say one thing. Don't ever rush into a marriage. Don't ever do that. You've been, you've been dating uh, for, for three months, and you say, oh, boy, this is the one. This is the one. And they say, let's get married. Let's get married. You hadn't even time to know how they smell when they get up in the morning. I don't know where that came from. My God. I do not know where that came from. I don't believe that was from the Lord. I'd just be frank with you. Whew. Lord, help me. I, I don't need that. You don't even know how they look when they get up. Now that's better. You haven't had a time, a chance to see them under stress. You haven't had a chance to see them when they didn't get their way. Or you haven't had an opportunity to observe how they deal with their anger. And so I'm telling you, it takes a while to get to know somebody. It takes a while. And then after a while, what's on the inside will come out. And you will really know whether or not they're, they're believers or not. So if, you, if, if when you're asked to go out with this person or you go out, you find out they're unbeliever, uh, your next time they call, you say, well, I've got other plans. And what is that? I'm, I have plans to date a Christian. And um, so I, I don't think I can go out with you anymore. But I'm just saying, I, that's the first thing. You've got to be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I want to say the second thing. This is, my, this is the problem. And I know it's true because I've been there. Before you get married and you go marry a believer, I mean, you just can't be with them enough. You can't talk to them enough. You can't spend time with them enough. And for about the first two years, you just, you just can't, you just don't want to be out of their presence. You just want to be with them. And then after two years, you come home and you sit in your chair and they just wave at you when they go by. <laughs> they don't communicate. You don't communicate. You know, before you marry that woman or that man, you talk to them on the phone all the time. It's a wonder the phone didn't grow to your ear. I am telling you, you couldn't wait to call them when you got home. Or you'd call them at, when you're on break. Man, I just got to talk to them. Now you, can't, they won't, you won't even talk to each other. How long has it been since you and your husband just sat down and talked about things 
It don't have to be significant things, but you were not angry about anything. You were not aggravated about anything. You weren't going to jump on each other. You just sat down and talked about life and talked about where you are and all those things. You communicated. You communicated. And your husband came home from work. He had a bad day. You listened to him. Your wife comes home. She's had a bad day. Or she's been home all day with the kids and she's had a bad day. And But see, it's called communication. I want to ask you, do you communicate with your husband or wife? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about every now and then say, boy, that was a good, good breakfast this morning or... I mean, I mean, do you ever talk about serious things? Do you ever talk about serious things? Do you ever talk about Jesus and your relationship with him? Do you pray with each other? You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shy. I mean, and I understand things like that. But let me just say one thing to you. You stop communicating and you're headed for trouble. They got all over Mike Pence because he wouldn't go out and eat lunch with anybody but his wife. They said he doesn't like women. No, he does like women. That's just it. He loves his wife. Amen. You'll never see me out eating with a woman with my wife not there. One, because I know it's wrong. Because I, you know, I don't want to put myself, I want to abstain from all appearance of evil. The second thing, if my wife found out about it, she'd knock me in the head. <laughs> you say, Brother Fred, that's too narrow. Wait a minute. You better put safeguards around your marriage, my friend. You better put safeguards around it. Are you listening to me? You, the devil would love to have you. Somebody comes to the office every day and they're all dressed nice, you know, and got on their shaving cream after they shaved or all dressed up, you know, and, and your wife's at home just wake, taking care of the kids and look like she's been beat up three times and, and you're around this person all day and they just seem so sweet and so and you come home to your wife and she can't hardly walk. Hey, what do you expect? My Lord, let me tell you something. Under God, you better protect your marriage. And you better communicate. And you better be transparent. If there's anything you won't talk to your wife about or your husband about, something's wrong. They should be your best friend. And you should be able to communicate with them about anything. Anything. I'm just telling you. And so if the family begins with the, with, the, with the marriage. If the marriage's bad, the kids are going to be bad. It is. That's the way it's going to be. Because they see the example. And they'll pattern their lives after that example. And so I, you've got to pursue the family. You've got to pursue a marriage that, is, that you enjoy and you do not endure. You have to choose, you pursue a marriage where there's a, a con- communication, transparency, Quality time with each other where Christ is the center of that marriage and the word of God is your standard and guide. I am telling you, you have to have Christ in the center of your marriage because without that, the flesh will take over and it's not if we'll have trouble, it's what kind of trouble. And you've got to raise your children together. It's not your wife's responsibility or your husband's responsibility. It's your responsibility together. I want to ask you this. Are you a one-miler in your pursuit of God, in your pursuit of holiness, in your pursuit of the forgiveness of others, in your pursuit of uh, being generous instead of greedy? Are you going to be a second-miler when it comes to your family? I don't care if you become CEO of your company. You reach every goal you have, but along the way, you lose your wife, 
you lose your children. I'm not saying they're left, but you, you become up here and you just go off and leave them. And one day you go home and it's like you don't know them. And it's like they don't know you. Oh, you're successful in the eyes of the world, but you can be a failure with the most important thing in the world. And that is your family. And God does not want that. He does not want that. 